during the previous Sunday morning message series, we talked about God's wonderful design and creation. How he created everything as both being good and also to be good. The earth, the animals, and us. Good means pure and flawless and sinless. And we talked about what happened next, what happened in the world that we live in now, and, and what we can do to work towards restoring creation, that is the earth and us, back to its perfect design. And last week during the message, which I titled, It's Our Turn, we went a little deeper into our roles and responsibilities in this effort. This morning, we're going to talk about one of the powerful tools we have in our arsenal as we leverage what God has done for us. And we're going to start with just a few quick Bible studies. And these are going to be around, as you can guess, the concept of, of a miracle. So if you would like to turn your Bible to John 2, 1 through 11, this is uh, where Jesus changed the water into wine. So it's one you're familiar with, but... I'm going to go ahead and pull out, and we're going to read from Scripture. John 2, verse 1 through 11. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus' disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus said. My hour has not yet come. Now, it's, it's worth noting, and if you've got your Bible, there's probably a little footnote right after the word woman. And the original Hebrew word here was not a derogatory term, okay? It's not, I may have even said it wrong. Jesus has a gentle voice, voice, I imagine, but very direct as well. And he said, woman, you know, woman, why do you, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amazing story. It's a, it's a miracle. And we don't, we always, we're familiar with that one. And, and what's interesting about this one, if you were to dive a little deeper, is, you know, kind of what the, the, the master of the, of the ceremony said, that people give the good wine first and as the drinking goes on and gets less. And he says, you brought up the past. So Jesus didn't only do this miracle he made something great and the, really the purpose was to kind of establish his credibility with his disciples because they're the only ones that knew what had happened here now if we were to skip ahead to john 5 verse 1 through 15 sometime later jesus went up to jerusalem for one of the jewish festivals now there is in jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool which in aramaic is called bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he says, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. The man said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. 
But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. I'm just going to pause here for a second because when I read that, something always comes to my mind. Jesus had to ask, do you want to be well? It's not about Jesus didn't know what this man wanted to be well. And any of us could probably look at someone and say, I assume you want to be better in a better condition. So why is it that Jesus had to ask? It's the same reason he has to ask us. It's an invitation. And you have to make that decision. And you have to make that statement. Now, this man still did what we do. I have no one to help me, right? Every time I try to get in, someone cuts in front of me. You know, life isn't fair. Where's my blessing? And what does Jesus say? He says, just get up and walk. Okay? Not only did he give him the miracle, but he gave him the instructions. And what happened? Jesus found him later at the temple. So where did he walk to? We have every indication that he walked the temple to praise God. And that's how Jesus worked. In John 6, 5 through 14, we find the feeding of the 5,000. I'll, I'll paraphrase this quite a bit. But, you know, Jesus had a large crowd that gathered to hear him speak. And people were hungry and they were talking about getting ready to leave. And, and of course, when you have a captive audience, you want to keep them there. <clears throat> Paraphrasing quite a bit at this point. And Jesus said, you know, we need to feed them. And they said, where shall we buy bread? Philip answered, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread to each one to have even a bite. Anyway, another disciple's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how will they go among so many? And what did Jesus do? He didn't say, Alakazamber, do anything. He just said, put them in a basket and pass it. And by the time it got through this crowd of, of the Bible says 5,000, there was left over. There was left over. It says, So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves over those, by those who had eaten. And it says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. John 6, 16 through 24, we hear the story of Jesus performing the miracle walking on the water. His, his disciples had gone ahead of them. They were rowing. It said they'd rowed for quite a while. And it said they were quite a ways out there and a storm had come up and they were frightened. And here comes this man walking towards them on the water who calmed the storm. And again, it says, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor the disciples were there, they got in the boats and went to Capernaum to search for Jesus because they had saw what had happened. They, well, people are curious. They wanted to lean in and, and see who this man was. What's his story? And just the last of the quick miracles that I want to share is the, the death of Lazarus. Now, in our Bible study, we had, we had talked about, and here as well, Mary and Martha. And when you hear the story of Mary and Martha, people identify as one or the other. And, and I won't dive into that, but one of them is the Jesus is coming. I got to make everything ready. Rush, 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 rush. Make it perfect, make it perfect. And, and the other one is the one that says, Jesus is here. I'm going to sit at his feet and I'm going to listen to him, what he has to say. And, and the, the rusher, the, the one got so jealous. She said, I'm doing all the work. And, and my sister is just sitting here visiting, you know, and, and, Jesus' statement after that is very powerful. You know, who knows what is the most important of this too? 
But anyway, it's the same sisters, Mary and Martha, and they had a brother named Lazarus. And, and it's, the Bible says Lazarus was loved by Jesus. Jesus loved this man, Lazarus, like a brother. And he heard that a man named Lazarus was sick. This is John 11, 1 through 45, and I'll just read portion, but I want you to know where it is for you to read on your own. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same who had poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his hair with her feet. So this is the same couple of sisters that, we, that story is about. So the sisters went, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now Jesus told his disciples, the sickness will not end in death. Okay, that starts at verse four. Yet he spent a little more time before he went back. He didn't rush back for this man he loved. He took his time getting back. And when he got back, one of the sisters ran out and, he, and Lazarus already died and like, Master, if you had just come sooner, he could have been saved. Aren't we like that? Lord, you missed your opportunity to answer my, my prayer. But Jesus came in his perfect time to perform this miracle. And we know what happened. She said, she said go roll that stone away and Lazarus was alive. In fact, if we skip to verse 38, it says, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave, grave clothes and let him go. I just set in the stage for some of these miracles. And there are, this is just a few of many, many miracles that Jesus performed. And we know that God also performed miracles, many of which we read about in Genesis. All of creation is a miracle. And if you read the story of the Israelites from the Exodus from Egypt, miracle upon miracle of what he performed. And the majority of the miracles are, are like this. They are miraculous stories of faith healing or exorcism or resurrection or control over nature, right? We think of the parting of the sea and forgiveness of sins. Now, in, in some of these stories that I already shared, Jesus said, get up. You know, he, he said, do you want to be healed? You know, it takes that invitation. It takes that acceptance. And in every case, he, the, the miracle was a result to pointing the glory to God. Even, even Jesus in his own prayer said, God, if you hear me, and he goes, and I know you hear me. I'm saying this for the benefit of people here. He said, I know you hear me. I know you know what I want. But I want them to believe in you. And there are many types of miracles in the Bible, but what about the greatest miracle of all? The one that truly meets the, def meets the definition of a miracle. A miracle says it's a result of something of divine intervention, right? It's something unnatural that must be, there's something must be at play for that to be a miracle. There is one miracle that meets that definition, a result of divine intervention, and that's the miracle of the grace afforded to us by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His intervention in our spiritual death from our sins is the greatest miracle of all. Now, I've titled this message, The Leverage Miracle. To leverage something is to use it for maximum advantage. 
This morning we're going to talk about why we can leverage this miracle, how we can and should leverage it, and what it means to leverage the miracle of the cross. And we can look at this from two perspectives. How can we use this leverage to help others? And let's be honest, how can we use this miracle and leverage it to help ourselves? From Matthew 5, 17, and we know this, and these are Jesus' those words. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, that means that Jesus' purpose and work had two components. First, to not abolish the law means that God's commandments, God's sovereignty, the stuff we've been talking about, remains the authority. God is God, period. Jesus did not come to undermine, to diminish, invalidate, or anything like that. In fact, Jesus' ministry gave focus and glory to God. Think about one of, the, one of the sermons that we always think of, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, And he always starts his instructions this way. You have heard it said. You have heard it said. And he is quoting Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. You know, the law is what he's quoting. You say, you've heard my father say. Now let me tell you what it means, or let me tell you how you apply this. He never took any credit for himself. It was always about his father. Second, Jesus' statement, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, means that he was to establish the word, right? To embody it, to fully accomplish all that was written in it about him. In short, he had work to do. He came here with a purpose and a mission. He came to save you. And he came to save others. He came to further God's kingdom by adding to the numbers. And he came to teach you how to do the same thing. He came to give glory to God. And he always put the focus on his his and our Heavenly Father, not himself. In fact, when they said, you know, someone called Jesus good. And yes, he was good. He is good. But what Jesus' response was, who do you say is good? There's only one good, and that is my Father. And he taught us to look at it the same way. We just read as a congregation the Lord's Prayer. That is Jesus' model prayer. This then is how you should pray. Look at the words of that prayer. Take it apart and think about what it is. You're giving thanks. You're asking to be saved from temptation, to not be led into temptation, to forgive others, to be forgiven. Jesus knew glory goes to God. That is our hope. And he also taught us that in the words of the last prayer or the last supper and his prayer and and teaching then. You know, I I always say it when we take communion, you know, when he, when he poured the wine, when he poured the cup, he said, he gave thanks and he, and he prayed to the father. And I said, man, if, if Jesus, this good, good man, this perfect, flawless, sinless man needs to pray, how much more do we? I say that all the time. He's modeling the example. Father, I'm not giving you thanks just because you need to hear it from me, but they need to know that's how important it is. But Jesus did not leave earth because his work was done. It was a part of the process that he was in God's plan. But even Jesus said, you know, oh, take this away from me. I don't want to go through this, but your will not mine be done. And that's what happened. And he accomplished what he was to accomplish in God's plan. And his last words on the cross were tetelestai. Remember tetelestai, which means it is finished. That's how we loosely translate. It is finished. 
But if you look at the original word, it is a perfect verb, right? We've talked about this. It is finished. Tetelestai means it is continually finished. Not once and done, not once every day, but it's an ongoing action. It is accomplished once and for all times. Jesus had accomplished what he had been sent to do, at least to that point. But he is still at work on your behalf, and he has left you in charge of your part to carry on the work here. Do you remember what that work is? We talked about it a minute ago. To save yourself by seeking his grace and mercy. He came to save you. Now save yourself. All that call on the name of the Lord will be saved. These words are found in Romans 10, 16 and Acts 2, 21. But that's the Apostle Paul quoting Joel 2, 32. It says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus came to save others. That is a part of our role too. James 5.20, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You want to be your hero? Yes, pull someone out of a burning car or something like that. You want to be a real hero? Save their soul. He came to share the good news and grow the kingdom. You remember these words? Of course you do. Therefore go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then here comes your help. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the Great Commission. And what happened next? In Acts 2, which we're studying Acts on Sunday morning Bible study, Acts 2, 42 through 47 says this about the disciples. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, all the things that the modern church continues to do. He said, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising the Lord and enjoying the favor of all the people. So doing exactly what they've been commanded to do. And this is the last sentence. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That is the mission of the church. That is what God left Jesus to teach us to do after he left us. And last, Jesus came to give glory to God. You are called to do the same. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You want to read some real words of praise? Dive into the book of Psalms. In fact, when someone wants to know what a good first Bible reading plan is, I'd say mix it up a little bit of Psalms, a little bit of Proverbs, and in the book of John. I also like the story of Luke, which is the book of Luke, which is the story of Jesus, and I love Luke's writing style. But you want to mix up a little bit of the songs, the songs of joy and praise, what God has done for people. Um, there's a little bit of lamentation in there because, you know, not life isn't always easy. And the Proverbs, these little pearls of wisdom. And then John to hear the story. The leverage miracle. Another term for leverage may be to take advantage of something. Now, this can have both positive or negative. I have to, you know, when I say, ooh, let's take advantage of that or, or someone's taking advantage of me, it can have a different feeling. No one wants to feel taken advantage of in terms of being exploited or used for selfish purpose, but we want to take advantage by putting opportunities to good use, right? We pray for that. Let's, let's take advantage of an opportunity to talk to someone about a need they may have. Let's take advantage of an opportunity 
to worship God. Let's take advantage of an opportunity to take care of ourselves. But when you think about this, when it comes to the cross, when we talk, when we talk about this miracle of salvation, do you take advantage of it in a positive way or, or, or are you missing an opportunity? And what would Jesus say you do? I'm not confident that he would object to you having a selfish motivation. It, it, you know, because if it assures your place in heaven, that's what he came to do. He's like, use me. Take advantage of me and my sacrifice. Take advantage of it. I did it for you. I'd like to think he'd say something like, take advantage of my sacrifice that brought you grace and mercy. But don't forget that I did this for everyone else too. Everyone. He might even say, how about sharing some of that good news with the people around you? And he'd say, that is after all what I command you to do. The Bible records the stories of countless miracles. And, and which one of these do we think is the greatest? You know, I'd say when if we wanted to judge that, we might say something like, what benefited the most people? What made the greatest long-term impact on God's people? What, what's the one that's the most amazing, most awe-inspiring? That would be so cool if I was there when he did this or did that. Each one of these standards points to a single miracle, and that's the miracle of salvation. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and the resurrection, that benef- it benefited the most people. Jesus may have fed 5,000 people, right, with a couple loaves and a couple fish. But his overcoming the world, defeating death itself, created a pathway to salvation and to hope, the hope, the hope that benefits everyone that accepts this free gift of grace. That is everyone from the moment that happened till now and into the future, including you, your children, your children's children. That is a great impact. That's awe-inspiring. So what does it mean to leverage a miracle? If you're a little analytical by me, and I know some of us are, and you kind of look at that thing and you're trying to do the math in your head. I mean, if you look at it at first glance, it doesn't make sense, right? But when you think about it, consider what you know about physics, balancing two masses. If they're equal, the point they rest on, that's called a, a fulcrum. And I actually remember that. I looked it up to make sure it was right, but it is. I remembered fulcrum. You know, if they're equal, you can put that right in the middle, like a teeter-totter, and it balances itself out. But life doesn't always seem well-balanced or equal or fair, does it? When the pressure weight on the other side is greater, the balance shifts unless you move the fulcrum like this picture with one rock on one side and, and the rock balancing the, the stack of rocks on the other side is, is off to that side. Do you want to find balance or even rise above the mounting weight on the other side? Then leverage the fulcrum by moving it the right direction. Do you see where I'm going with this? If you want to leverage the miracle of Jesus Christ, bring him closer to you and then watch as the load on the other side loses its power and influence. You want to lift someone up, put them on the other end and use your influence and Jesus' power to lift them up or better yet, move them closer to the miracle of Jesus Christ and watch them rise through his power. Do the math. Consider the logic and check the score. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Every temptation, every problem, many of which you may have faced, many of which you may still face, defeated, defeated. So which side are we choosing to be on? Jesus is there saying, do you want to get better? Do you want to be saved? God has made a promise to you and he wants you to claim that promise. 
1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, I'm making this very personal. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. And God's own words from 2 Chronicles 7, 14. These are God's own words. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive them their sins and I will hear their land, heal their land. I will heal their land. Have you claimed that promise? Have you accepted that invitation? Have you said, yes, I want to get better. Yes, I want a salvation. Yes, I want a hope. I want a future. Where do you place your hope? In your own efforts and strengths or in the one in whom hope and faith is well-placed? If you are in a place that things feel balanced and your priorities with God and, and, are at the top of the list and, and Jesus close to your heart and, and you're leveraging perfectly against the, the struggles of the world, we celebrate that, right? That's why during our, our time of prayer, we have joys, right? Yes, answered prayers, life is good. Life is good. Thank God literally for that. But keep up your guard and your efforts because some of the small things can disrupt that balance. Are you one of those people, you know, when you place your hope, where do you put it? Do you, do you put it in your own efforts and strengths? Or do you put it where it belongs? And have you done this yet? If you're still struggling to rely fully and solely on him, I mean, are you still and are you having trouble understanding what any of this even means? Do you know what you should do but the place you're in at this moment in your life and you, you still feel sad or burdened or anxious or overwhelmed? You know what to do, but you seem stuck. Let's talk. There are answers to your questions. There are safe conversations that should be had that have your doubts and concerns addressed. And there is a comfort that awaits you. If this is you, I want to hear from you. Let me help you find the peace that God wants you to experience despite whatever it is on the other side that is robbing you of your joy. Don't go another day with anything keeping you from living life abundantly because that is what he wants from you. That is my prayer for you as well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. This book we call the Bible, the collection of, of stories and teachings and, and, and advice and, and motivation and instructions and, and so much written and put together for our benefit. This owner's manual, so to speak. Lord, and in it are these miraculous stories of, of times when people have been healed and, and waters have been parted and, and just science as we understand it has been blown away by your awesome power. All done in the name of getting us to know you better. To understand the power of who you are. To understand the credibility and value of knowing your son, Jesus Christ. Who came here not to bring glory to him, but to bring glory to you. And though he accomplished everything that he was supposed to accomplish at the time, we thank you that he's not done yet. Because we need him. We need him as an advocate. We need him as a role model. We need him as our mentor. We need him as our friend. We need to have that comfort of knowing that we can pray through him in his name and you will hear and you will answer. Lord, that's a miracle. 
we claim that miracle for our lives. We're going to leverage that miracle. We're going to take full advantage of that. And this week, we commit to you in this prayer that we are not going to miss a single opportunity to better ourselves and better the world around us thanks to the glory of your son and glory to you. Lord, I thank you for this building. I thank you for this church, this, this gathering of people. We may be diverse in our political beliefs. We may be diverse in our education, our background, a number of things. There's so many things in the world right now that divide. But the most important thing is what brings us together. And that is you. We have a common love, a common creator, a common provider. Lord, we are your children, period. May all we do this morning bring you honor and glory. May all who hear it in person or online be blessed. We thank you for who you are and what you're going to do through us. Amen.